3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 10th of October 2023. My name is Ifka and this morning I'm in the studio with Carnegie and Fung. How are we? Good morning. Good morning. We're well. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) We are well. (laughs) I'm well. I'm very well. How was your weekend? I'm trying to think about what I did on the weekend. That's exciting yeah um it was pretty relaxing i'm going away to thailand next week so a lot of planning for that there's more planning than you're used to with a little baby normally you just kind of head on off but uh, you got to think of all these other things mm, lots to pack i imagine lots to pack um what's something that you didn't think you'd have to or what's what's especially new I mean, or different. I guess just the sheer amount of things a baby needs is like absolutely <laughs> shocking, right? Like such a tiny person just requires more things than me and Daisy combined. So um, that in itself has been like hard to get my head around. Does a baby get their own luggage on the flight or Ooh, because or, they yeah. sit on your lap? They do, but they, yeah, they don't get their own luggage but they get like additional things you can check in for free like prams and cots oh i have always (laughs) wondered if that was free or not yeah no and the baby (laughs) um also they like charge like a nominal fee for the baby which i don't know so you live and you learn you know learning every day yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh Should we go through what's on today's show? Sure. We're starting off by revisiting a segment from an episode of Women on the Line that was broadcast in September. And in this segment, Sanya brings to us an excerpt from a, a webinar on reproductive rights for migrants and refugees. So that's coming up first. Afterwards, we thought that we would replay a segment from an interview that I had with Noura Mansour from APAN uh, back in August about the significance of Palestine, Palestinian resistance and we'll be talking more about what happened over the weekend in our news headlines this morning. We'll then be speaking with a campaigner called Anjali from a group called Desis for Yes, which is a group of South Asians, Australians in New South Wales who support the Indigenous Voice to Parliament and campaign for it in migrant South Asian communities. We will then be speaking with Cass Fumi, who is a theatre maker and is part of a new show by The Rabble called Wake, uh, which is explores the bodies of older women and ageing, which I'm really excited for that one. And at 8.15, we'll be joined by Edie, one part of the duo who 
Uh, the first week of Melbourne Fringe has just wrapped up and they've had their season extended. Uh, the show is called Hot, Fat, Crazy. So Edie will be joining us at 8.15. We'll be right back after this with the news headlines. Weight that is the symptom of the problem. What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today, the 10th of October, 2023. Over the weekend, on the 7th of October, Palestinians held captive for the past 16 years in Gaza broke through the walls that kept them isolated. For 16 years, the Israeli siege of Gaza had deprived, has deprived 2 million residents of clean water, food, electricity, healthcare, freedom of movement and privacy. In response, Israel has declared war and has announced a total blockade of Gaza, including a ban on food and fuel. Israeli Defense Minister said on the Israeli Defense Minister said on Monday that authorities would cut electricity and block the entry of food and fuel as part of a quote complete siege on Gaza. There have also been Israeli air attacks and shelling aimed at houses and apartment buildings that have displaced around 100,000 Palestinians in Gaza, according to the UN Humanitarian Relief Agency. Many of those forced to flee their homes are sheltering in some 64 schools in the coastal enclave, um, uh, according to the latest update brought by the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. There has been a SNAP action organised for tonight outside the State Library of Victoria on Wurundjeri Country. Um, so it is taking place tonight at 6pm at the State Library. Um, it's a rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. Uh, there's also been a rally called for Sunday the 15th of October. I don't think a time has been set yet, but you can follow updates Um with the Instagram account at Free Palestine Melb, um, and I'm sure they'll be posting updates every day. In other news, a an earthquake of 6.3 magnitude um, struck uh, 40 kilometers west of the city of Herat in Afghanistan at about 11 a.m. on Saturday, with strong aftershocks felt in the neighboring Baghdad and Farah provinces. The United States Geological Survey said the quake's epicenter was about 40 kilometres northwest of Herat City. It was followed by three very strong aftershocks, measuring magnitude of 6.3, 5.9 and 5.5, as well as lesser shocks. Yesterday, it had been reported that the death toll had risen to over 2,000. 
Back home, retail and fast food workers union members at hundreds of Coles and Woolworth supermarkets took part in a historic nationwide super strike on October 7 as they escalated industrial action for a living wage and better working conditions. About 1,000 workers across the country walked off the job from 10am till 12pm after Coles and Woolworths refused to budge on refuse uh, demands for higher wages, safer workplaces and secure jobs. This is the first time that the supermarket workers have taken nationwide industrial action. Coles and Woolworths have made huge profits during the cost of living crisis, um, approximately $1.1 billion and $1.6 billion respectively. Um, both companies have used inflation as an excuse to um, increase prices while wages have stagnated. A second two-hour strike is set to take place today, October 10th, and workers have pledged to escalate industrial action if the supermarket giants refuse to bargain. In other strike news, members of NTEU Monash started striking at 12pm yesterday, Monday 9th of October, demanding secure jobs, safe workloads and fair pay. The strike is due to continue until 11.59am tomorrow, October 11. A strike fund has been set up to support precariously employed members uh, to join the strike action. So if you'd like to donate to the fund or find out more, you can go to at NTEU Monash on Instagram or go to their link tree, which is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash NTEU Monash. A couple of weeks ago, Carnegie spoke to Rati and Lavanya from Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality about their walk from Melbourne to Parliament House, Canberra, to fight for visa equality for up to 10,000 people who have been denied permanent visas. A rally has been organised for the end of the end of the long walk, um, which will take place on at 12:45 p.m. on Wednesday, 18th of o- October, outside Parliament House. To follow the march, um, you can search the group on Facebook. They are called Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality. Finally, this is a reminder that this Thursday, the 12th of October, WIRE will be hosting a free event for women, non-binary and gender diverse people on how to navigate the legal system. There will be representatives from Inner Melbourne Community Legal Centre's Police Accountability Project, Flat Out, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Law and Advocacy Centre for Women and Court Network. This will be a hybrid event taking place on Zoom and in person at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre on Faraday Street in Carlton from 10am to 1pm. And you can sign up for the event at www.wire.org.au forward slash calendar. We spoke to um, Ayala from Wire and Megan from Court Network a couple of weeks ago. And those are the news headlines for today. This is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. (laughs) I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? 
from December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. Jess Hitchcock is a Melbourne-based Indigenous singer-songwriter who is a genre-defying force. This song by her is called Will Not Let Them Win. was Jess Hitchcock with their song, Will Not Let Them Win. We're starting the show this morning by revisiting a segment on reproductive rights for migrants and refugees that was broadcast on Women on the Line earlier in September. Here is Women on the Line presenter and producer, San Yao, with more of the details. 
On today's show, we are looking at reproductive justice among migrants and refugees in so-called Australia. Earlier in May, the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health held a webinar looking at advancing gender equality in reproductive justice. Shahir, who is an abortion care doctor and advocate living and working in Garmila, Darwin, Northern Territory, presents on abortion care among migrant and refugees in Garmila, Darwin. Let's hear from Shahir. Uh, my name is Shahir, my pronouns are they, them, and I've been asked today to discuss abortion care access amongst people who are migrants and refugees in Australia. Um, so I'll begin uh, my uh, presentation by sharing the story of Grace, um, who sought abortion care in Darwin. Uh, Grace was a cis woman of colour in her 20s in her first pregnancy, who sought care in the second trimester. She was born overseas but moved to Australia with her family during primary school. Um, she lived over 2,000 kilometres away but was referred to our service because she was not able to receive care locally due to her gestation. We offered her a telehealth assessment given her distance from our service. Um, Grace lived at home with her family because rent is expensive and she's only casually employed while studying full-time. Um, she was therefore worried that her family, whom she's afraid uh, would judge her, uh, would overhear the consultation at home. So she had to take the video call outside in a park in uh, another suburb. Um, at one point, the video call dropped off because she ran out of credit. Um, so we had to continue by telephone instead. Um, when we accepted her referral, she had to travel to our service alone as her partner was not able to afford the cost of travel to accompany her. The travel costs were large due to the need to travel at short notice to Darwin. Um, but she was grateful that she had a Medicare card because that meant that her care in Darwin was publicly funded um, because she was worried that she couldn't afford the cost of the abortion otherwise. Now, as we reflect on Grace's story, it's important to realise that many pregnant people who are migrants and refugees uh, face similar challenges when accessing abortion care in Australia still. Many are especially worried about the cost, which remain an important barrier. Abortion care can be especially expensive when it's not publicly funded and when it's not available locally. So how much is an abortion in Australia? Well, unfortunately, Abortion costs remains a lottery based on where you live, um, the gestation when you seek care and your visa status. When abortion is stigmatized in your community, pregnant people, including those who are migrants and refugees, may not be able to seek out financial support or emotional support from their family and friends, exacerbating the distress further when seeking care that's already expensive. So here is the cost of an abortion if you have a Medicaid card at a not-for-profit clinic in Sydney. Uh, see how the cost increases significantly as gestation progresses. You can imagine uh, many would struggle to come up with uh, $500, let alone 7000 at short notice. You would think that since one in three women in Australia will require an abortion in their lifetime, and that one in four pregnancies in Australia will end in an abortion, that there would be more public funding in abortion care. But unfortunately, the majority of abortion care in Australia still occurs in the non-government sector, and it still comes with these large out-of-pocket costs. 
even when it's subsidized by Medicare. Chronic disinvestment in Medicare means these subsidies are no longer enough to meet the operational costs of abortion provision. So primary care and non-government providers can't afford to bulk bill their renewal, and so they must transfer the cost to the pregnant people themselves, who ultimately are charged significant gaps to ensure that clinics can remain open for everyone. If you're lucky enough to live in a state or territory where publicly funded abortion care is widely available, like the Northern Territory, SA and the ACT, then you might not have to pay for the cost of your appointments or your procedures. However, for pregnant people on temporary visas, they usually face the highest costs for abortion care anywhere in Australia, as they are usually unable to access Medicare subsidies or publicly funded abortion services in most states and territories, except in the ACT. Here are the costs of an abortion if you're in, on a temporary visa at the same not-for-profit clinic in Sydney. Remember, providers are forced to charge these exorbitant amounts um, because governments unfortunately refuse to pay for the care uh, for people on temporary visas. Note that pregnant people on temporary visas may have visa-imposed restrictions on their ability to participate in any paid work. They may only be allowed to work a limited number of hours a week, or they may be prohibited from paid work altogether. Either way, this could restrain their financial resources to pay the high cost of abortion care, making it impossible for many to access it without substantial financial support or fee waivers from service providers. Imagine having to source this much money, $8,000, when you're not able to work in the midst of a rental, cost of living and energy crisis. Costs can increase further when a pregnant person like Grace has to travel to access care. And travel for many pregnant people in Australia is necessary if you live in, in an abortion desert, uh, an area where suitable abortion services are not available locally. People who live in rural and remote areas and people who seek care in the second trimester are more likely to live in an abortion desert and are more likely to have to travel further and pay more for travel because services become increasingly centralised in major centres. Um, although rare, less than 1% of abortions still occur in the, uh, after 22 weeks uh, where you require a specialised procedure called the feticide. In DNT, this is only available at the Royal Darwin Hospital where the Red Star is. Bear in mind, the distances um, in the Northern Territory can be massive and sometimes travel is not even possible because of heavy rains or because of storms. Uh, so, for example, the distance between Alice Springs and Darwin is about 1,500 kilometres and driving between the two cities can take about two or three long days. So how much is the cost of travel for essential abortion care? So this can be substantial because you have to travel at short notice usually due to the time critical nature of abortion care. So, for example, a return flight between Darwin and Alice Springs for one person for next Monday for a week stay in Darwin is about $900. The cheapest accommodation I can find online with a private room and bathroom for two people for the same week stay in Darwin is about $800. Add to that the cost of food and any Ubers in, uh, within Darwin and the travel costs quickly become unaffordable for many people. The need to gather resources to fund this travel at a short 
uh, at short notice can also contribute to delays or outright denial of abortion care for many. Additionally, the high costs may force pregnant people like Grace to travel alone without a support person. Imagine how alone Grace would have felt during her time in Darwin. Why is it important for us to consider travel costs for abortion care? Affordable travel arrangements go hand in hand with affordable abortion care. We're unlikely to eliminate the need for travel for abortion care. Even if we address all of the structural barriers to early medical abortion access, there will always be a demand for surgical abortions and abortion care after the first trimester. Both require trained proceduralists who must meet minimum caseload requirements to maintain their proficiency. So this might not be feasible in smaller centers. So publicly funded abortion care policy must include funding for travel and accommodation costs required when abortion care is not available locally. Most states and territories already have such a scheme to subsidize travel, but we must ask that this include pregnant people on temporary visas as well. So to recap, access to abortion care remains inequitable in Australia, including for migrants and refugees with intersecting identities. Access is still a postcode lottery for many. For a pregnant person who is a migrant on a temporary visa, who lives rurally, who requires care after the first trimester, who must travel to a major city as hundreds or thousands of kilometers away from home, who have limited economic resources, who's unable to speak or seek support from their family or friends because of stigma, who's affected by climate change and can't travel because of storms. The cost of essential abortion care without government support can be catastrophic. So what happens when you can't afford an abortion? Pregnant people who can't afford an abortion are forced to continue the pregnancy, are forced to birth that term, and are forced to parent when they don't feel ready to do so, or when they don't want to be parents at all. This is a violation of their reproductive autonomy. This is structural reproductive coercion and abuse, and it must stop. So what should we do? I always like to have a list of advocacy actions so we can focus our work. First, we need to call state and territory governments to provide publicly funded abortion and care for all, regardless of visa status. Remind them that it is possible as we applaud the ACT and call for the others to follow suit. We must also call for any arbitrary gestational limit to publicly funded abortion care to be removed. And we need to allow pregnant people to make health decisions that suit their needs at their own pace. We must ensure that states and territories have a publicly funded travel assistance scheme that subsidizes travel costs for pregnant people and their support persons when abortion care is not available locally. And this must include people on temporary visas. We must ask the federal government to collaborate with state and territory governments to achieve universal access to abortion care for all, including people on temporary visas. We know the federal government is capable of committing funds towards the healthcare of people on temporary visas where there is political will. You just heard from Shahir, who is an abortion care doctor and advocate. They presented on abortion care among migrant and refugees in Garmila, Darwin. That 
thank you to Senya for bringing us this excerpt from the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health webinar on reproductive justice. To find out more about the organisation, you can visit www.mcwh.com.au. Next up, we're going to go to a song. This is Nam-based artist Haiku Kia's latest release, Swan Dive, and just a language warning on this one. The song goes for uh, just under four minutes. First, lead with your heart, I'm an expert Take the fall, this will hurt Brace for the bottom, it's just dirt I'm see-through, like upskirt Lead on this page, that's just work Meditate to find words Jump on stage and it's all blurred Got so much liquor, shifting figures I slur the scripture, it's all familiar The bigger picture is so just figured Can't even tell if I'm standing in it White boy, on the internet Reckless, swing both ways like ambidextrous Catch two fists in the solar plexus Fights not feelings, nigga, it's domestic We got problems, so much drama Airplane mode till I find perspective Needed to surpass it, remain avid For surrender status It's a gamble, leave it, grasp it I'm stuck in the middle like Malcolm but little Detroit red, these streets so fickle Not civil, everybody's twisted, talking riddles Go figure, everybody whispers like low signal Not Twitter, come with the smoke man, keep that figure Blow O's for breakfast, you were just a bullet on checklist Next is, I am next in line for the garland The new standard, Vanguard just landed You can't stand it Swan dive, dress first Lead with your heart, I'm an expert Take the fall, this will hurt Brace for the bottom, it's just dirt I'm see-through, like upskirt Lead on this page, that's just work Meditate to find words 
jump on stage and it's all blurred. That was Swan Dive by Haiku Kia. In light of news from Palestine over the weekend, we wanted to revisit a conversation that I had with Noura Mansour from APAN about the significance of Palestinian resistance. This interview was originally aired on Women on the Line in late August 2023. I guess related to this discussion that we've been having about seeing through what the Israeli government is trying to do. Related to that, I guess, is looking at language and the power that it has. So last month, Al Jazeera published an article about the way that Western media was reporting on the attack uh, on Janine refugee camp and, and how a lot of publications were, were using language deemed, quote-unquote, neutral, such as Operation AIM, allegedly, and in doing so, removing any acknowledgement of the long history of violence and genocide uh, committed by by the Israeli government. So I wanted, wondered if you could talk about how language can be both damaging but also be used as a tool for, for radical change. I think that's an important question, specifically when you're, you know, in an asymmetric um, situation or context, uh, and such as the one that we have in the Palestine context, where you have... Um, an extremely powerful player on one hand that is the state actor and non-state actors, right? Uh, I think it's important language becomes um, a game changer. So it's, and sometimes it becomes, you know, when we talk about resistance as well, like this is one form of resistance and one form of um, countering the, the the aggressive narrative that, or also the, vil- the vilification and discourse that happens when we talk about Palestinian, you know, people basically just resisting or demanding the right to live peacefully on their land. So I think this becomes a very crucial point, specifically when you're um, the colonized part or when you are the the less powerful, quote-unquote, in the the material sense part. So, yes, language is extremely important. It's And and it's sad to see that, you know, mainstream media with... I I mean, to me, it's misinformation and disinformation as well. When you try and downplay the severity of a certain event or incident and you say, oh, operation or conflict, and and that's just not factual because there is no conflict. There is one side that is exercising um, extreme power to further their agenda, and the other side has no tools to basically to engage in conflict. Like one side exists and the other doesn't in that sense. So I think it's important to to call out these um, misinformation attempts that the mainstream media constantly keeps pushing. I was wondering in your role at APAN, and you said a lot of the work that APAN does, work that you do is around media communication. Uh, I imagine that language is a very big part of that and feeling empowered to communicate the messages about Palestine and advocating for Palestine in the way that you want it to be communicated, that there is no room for mis- or disinformation. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that in the context of your work at APAN. So we try to basically bring to the Australian public um, the um, Palestinian truth, Right. We talk about the Palestinian truth, the the, the Palestinian narrative, uh, Palestinian demands, what the Palestinian people want uh, and what the Palestinian people are fighting for. And also to bring more updates 
from Palestinians on the ground as well in terms of what what is happening on a day-to-day basis and how the Israeli occupation affects Palestinians lives um, on a daily matter and what for instance we talk about smooth which in Arabic means steadfastness and resilience so what does that look like on a daily basis resistance what does it look like like on a daily basis so many different modes and forms of resistance that are being played out you know, as we speak right now, I'm talking to you, Palestinians back home are resisting and, um, you know, they exercise sumud. So uh, what does that look like? And it not, not only it happens in Palestine where um, people come, you know, people basically put their bodies on the line and there are, they're holding the line for basically any fight that is anti-racist and anti-colonial. And we see it happening in, on a high intensity in Palestine. Like this is what it looks like, right? The clashes between anti-colonial and colonial powers, um, between you know racism, uh, white supremacy, um, and indigeneity. So we see that being played out on a high um, intensity level in Palestine. So yes, so we try to bring forward these examples. We try... Um, to talk about the beauty as well um, and, and the inspiration and the power and the agency that the Palestinian people have um, in their life, which is quite inspiring because if um, anyone has visited or if you grew up in a context where every little aspect of your life is being controlled by an external power, then you would realize how difficult it is and how much strength it requires for people to keep up the fight and keep up the hope and also insist on living um, a natural, normal human life. You know what I mean? Like that we insist on having parties. We insist on um, going to university. We insist on uh, getting education. Uh, we insist on our culture. We, we, we continue to fight and resist through, you know, culture, education, archaeology, um, and all these different aspects of life. So every, every, sadly, it becomes everything you do becomes an act of activism and resistance, whereas, you know, in another context, it's just a normal daily, day-to-day life. It sounds so exhausting, like you were saying. It is. It is quite exhausting. But also, you know, in that context, you learn to find strength in places you would not expect. Like, you know, we talk about the plights of the Palestinian prisoners, right? A year ago, we had six prisoners who, despite living in horrible conditions, like there's um, the most controlled and marginalized and targeted um, group of the Palestinian people are the Palestinian prisoners. Um, They're highly vulnerable to Israeli aggression because, you know, the nature of their lives as prisoners um and they live in administrative detention where they there's no trial no they're not allowed to see their lawyers um uh, sort of you know which is illegal under international law as well um but we had six prisoners who managed to dig a tunnel from a high security prison and escape and you know break free for a couple of weeks and of course everyone you know we knew they were gonna be caught. They knew they were going to be caught. No one was expecting that this is going to be the break of a lifetime. But um, these kind of examples, like you draw inspiration from these kind of examples, that despite we know that life is grim and we know how aggressive and how difficult and how hard it is, but we ins- we insist on you know trying. We will keep trying. So I-, I think that's beautiful and that's you know poetic and inspiring. 
And, and look, one mode of resistance is armed resistance, obviously, because, you know, reality under occupation is extremely harsh. And sometimes, you know, people have no options. Like even having a party becomes something that you cannot do. Going to uni is something that you, you, you're not allowed. So it's important to keep in mind that these kind of, um, you know, tools and, and our armed resistance or resistance in general, in a sense, are a byproduct of the occupation. So as long as, you know, people, there's um, oppression, there will always be resistance. Like, and, and, and the need for people to be free and to be, um, you know, to have self-determination is, is an innate basic human need. What are some things that the non-Palestinian community can do to show their support and solidarity for the Palestinian cause? There's heaps of things that we can do to show solidarity and support with the Palestinian cause, um, starting with um, maybe finding and connecting with Palestinian groups. For instance, um, you know, here um, in Victoria and Wurundjeri country, uh, we've got local. So there's locals. There's also um, national, I guess, so to speak. Uh, networks. So the national network would be APAN, for instance. Um, so connect with APAN, uh, become an APAN member, check our website, uh, join our events. But also there's local groups such as the Free Palestine Melbourne in Victoria and uh, One Wurundjeri Country. There are others as well in South Australia and across the continent. So make sure that you find these groups, connect, join the events, you know, you can support by either becoming a member or maybe donation or different ways. There's always some campaign happening. So there's that's one way of doing that, connecting with groups and individuals who are advocating. But a different way to do it is actually to raise awareness, um, you know, to talk to your friends about the Palestinian cause, talk to your uh, neighbors, your you know colleagues, and I know sometimes it's a tough conversation to have because once again, because of the entire misinformation around it, right? When people go, oh, it's, but it's very complex, but it's very complex. How do we talk about Palestine? And uh, it's not, it's not complex, really. It's straightforward. It's just, in, you know, there's one side who is a colonial power and there's indigenous colonized people. And, and that's it. That's pretty much sums it up. It's not necessarily, it's it's not primarily about religion. It's not primarily about nationality. And, but there's these aspects in it as well. There's, so there's some aspects of nationality and religion that kind of are interwoven into it, but primarily it's a settler colonial project. That's what it is. So talk to your friends about it, connect with groups and um, just help us spread the word that, yeah, this is what's happening in Palestine. That was Noura Mansour from APAN speaking to me for Women on the Line uh, in August. Just a reminder that there's a snap action rally organised for tonight. Uh, that's tonight, 10th of October at 6pm on Wurundjeri Country outside the State Library. We're going to play you a track next. Uh, this is a track by... Uh, Maliangapa and Barikinj musician and rapper Barka and it's called For My Tiddos. Barka! Please don't sell your soul for a couple of jakes Embrace your black skin and your race with it 
Your black fire, your blackness, and your dark skin kid. Race strong black kids, forever drugs in the bin. And you'll be bound to make your old people look at you and grin. Huh? Stand strong like the matriarchy. And hit up, I am higher than the stars can reach. You ain't gotta act different when it comes to me. I believe in your sister, take a walk with me. For My Tedas by Baka. Daisies for Yes is a collective of South Asian Australians in New South Wales supporting the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. Joining us today is campaigner Anjali to talk about the grassroots work that they're doing. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Anjali. Thanks so much, Anagi, and great track, um, I'm calling from uh, Wangaland in uh, also called Jamoin, and I pay my respects to um, to elders, past and present, and any Aboriginal Islander listeners. Thank Thanks, Angela. It's great to have you on the show. Um, could you start by just telling us a little bit more about Daisy's for Yes? How did it come about, and how did you get involved? So, about three months ago, uh, I got a call from a former colleague, um, Nishad Rego. 
and he and a friend of his, Kushal Vyas, uh, had decided to come together in a little bit in the aftermath of um, the marriage equality plebiscite, where migrant communities were were blamed for not necessarily coming to the marriage party. Um, and we wanted to, they decided to uh, form a group called They Seeds for Yes. And the idea of the group was to build a campaign to ensure that Indian Australians were more informed about about the voice and why a constitutionally recognised voice was important, that they were supporting First Nations people and that this story of um, informed support and solidarity was widely told in the media. That's really great. I think that's important work to do, especially... Um, as a migrant myself, I I think that, you know, often migrant communities um, find it, you know, not as easy to be involved in p- politics or, um, you know, there could be fear there. That there's a whole myriad of factors involved. Why do you think it's important to campaign in migrant communities? I, I think you've pointed it out a little bit. Firstly, um People who were who are born overseas make up just under a third of the the voting population in this country. So um, it's really important, particularly when we're when we're talking about a referendum that needs significant majorities across the six states, so four out of the six states, and a majority across the population, uh, to make sure that we've got the best shot at that. And apart from fear, there's also, when, when we're talking about a referendum change, as we've realised, there is the, particularly with this issue, there are many different elements to it. So firstly, what a referendum is and how government in Australia works. So there's a kind of education around governance and government and process of that. Then there's the historical reason, which most people who come as migrants, unless they've been educated here, don't know about. And they've not been they've not had the education that that some of us who have grown up here do have. So there's that. And then there's also this uh, the idea of the the, in, the injustice and the equity and what it means to recognise people who are who are here first and why it doesn't necessarily mean that it disadvantages you, but in fact it's needed for us all to move forward as as a country. That's really great. Um, You know, last week on the show we spoke to uh, an academic from RMIT from, you know, a Chinese background, and she talked to us about the work she does with Chinese migrant communities, and, you know, she kind of, their, their approach was to, you know, let them debate within each other, the people who wanted to vote yes and no, and see how, um, you know, that their minds could be changed more more towards the yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the way in which they see for yes uh, campaign in South Asian communities? Sure. So the uh, campaign, but the overarching campaign strategy was to try to educate um, people through dialogue through pieces in diaspora media, like Indian League and going on shows and talk shows. 
as well as uh, a grassroots organising campaign. So to do that, we worked with Youth of the Streets. Um, you might have seen Jackie uh, and Nicole uh, run this amazing workshop where they take people through the Uluru Statement and their personal experiences of why this is important. And they've been doing this work for a long time. So we kicked off with that workshop. And then from there, we used attendees or attendees from that workshop could sign up to host community conversations in their own circles. So that's the kind of education part. And then, and I'll talk about that in a minute, Um, and we also at the same time uh, connected with mainstream media to tell the story of what we were doing, um, it through pieces in The Guardian and the FC, as well as um, connecting directly with the Yes campaign to say, hey, this is what we're hearing, this is what we're doing, and building more credibility there. And then, um, meanwhile, we were also building our social media presence so that we were educating people there as well, as well as sort of building the reach there that we couldn't necessarily do through the, the community conversation. Yeah, and it's sounding like you've kind of got a lot of bases covered. <laughs> we did, we did. And then and then with the um, actual conversations, I think we've had about 10 a day. Some have been in person and some have been online. And I think what we've found is we've worked in some cases with, um, you know, intimate groups of friends who gathered their, their friends together. And they've... They, they tend not to be hard no voters because they've they've been gathered through with a certain idea in mind of, of um, learning more. They know the name of the group, basically. Yes, um, but but by creating that space, it's, a, it's really a, a really safe space where they can ask questions at the end and be answered in really relevant and meaningful ways and. And the facilitators have, facilitators have taken the information. So we created a, a slide deck and then they reshare it with them and share our notes with them. And they then insert relevant context, whether it's the context of partition for the Pakistani and Indian community, whether it's um, the 1971 um, independence of Bangladesh or... Yeah, they use those contexts to make the messages really relevant and resonate and inspire their communities. That's really interesting. Um, On a community level, what's the sort of feedback you're getting and what's the general sentiment been like? And, you know, have you been, you know, come across a lot of misinformation that a lot of these communities are having to kind of wade through? Yes, I mean, it's. I think people, on the whole, are want are curious, and once we present um, the historical and the present day reasons and the and the moral reasons, and also the the fact that you know people are living and benefiting and doing better than First Nations people as a result of living on their land, people are primed to want to do the right thing but there is information that is coming through from uh, say their friends um, that they bring into the conversation so you know ideas of people um, 
people's land being taken or um, it being a, a divisive thing that disadvantaged, you know, why it's a discrimination in that why is there not a voice for for migrant communities? And that's probably the most common thing that we've, we've heard. But I think once we set out the basis for uh, recognition, and then also the, the practical nature of what's being asked for because of the lack of recognition and dispossession. And we set it out. We have, um, I think our messages, messaging has been now quite strengthened. We've got a couple of volunteers who are, who are lawyers and they're able to clearly say that, you know, people are not going to take your land away because Parliament needs to create the laws to if they wanted to do that, and they're not going to do that because Parliament is made up of a whole range of people who have interest in, in their own private land. So I think having these clear, logical answers, you know, if people wanted to take land away, there are already there is existing frameworks. If people want, there are, there's, um, yeah, there's already um, laws that if, want, if people wanted to do that, they could. And then finally, that the chat that there might be a chat that is constitutionally risky because there might be challenges to the High Court. And then again, having information to say that, um, you know, legal experts, former judges have said that this, and the Solicitor General have said it's not, it's not likely. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. And, you know, the irony that that's the fear when it's actually First Nations people's land yeah. that's been taken. Um, yeah, it's just, it is interesting because I feel like migrants come come here with a certain kind of expectation. They have a certain idea of what Australia is. Um, and instead, you know, they are faced with the reality here of the fact that we are all living on stolen lands and we do need to support First Nations people Um you know, while this campaign is obviously great. And I think, you know, there's there's great arguments within um, Indigenous communities for both sides. But I think as migrants and as settlers, we have no choice um, but to vote yes in good conscience. Um, but, you know, how can we continue supporting First Nations communities even beyond this yes campaign, um, particularly, you know, in the land back campaigns and things like that? Great question. And it's, you know, it is something that, that firstly, I agree that I think it's very uh, difficult while there might be a few voices, you know, in the amongst Indigenous communities asking for more. Um, how we support, I think what, we've, what I've realised through a number of interactions with Jade Ritchie and the Earth Campaign with... Um, my mum hosted a community conversation at her house and I was so proud of her because it was the first time that she organised that was not, you know, something that was organised for her, like church. And there was a, an, an Aboriginal woman who came to that. Another friend brought her along. And it was so powerful to see that connection and to see uh, this woman feel so supported and seen by a huge number of people around her. So I think... Beyond this, I think it's about continuing to build really meaningful relationships um, with Aboriginal people and with the cause. And I think the Uluru Statement itself has been a really beautiful way to mediate with Aboriginal people because, you know, 
with as being 3% of the population, it's not like we can ask Aboriginal people to come to our, all of our events and present. But the statement itself and um, connecting with ideas and, and, and listening, really, like I think if there's an... If there's an um, yeah, whether it's a, a formal voice in the constitution or its voices, I think we have to continue working to listen deeply. Yeah, I think that's a really great point um, to end on today. I think that listening is is the primary thing here for um, all migrants and settlers. Um, yeah, and just remembering that we are on, on stolen lands and supporting First Nations communities wherever we can primarily through grassroots campaigns as well. Um, where can listeners find out more about Desis for Yes and follow your work? Oh, please head to uh, Desis for Yes on Instagram. Um, we're also on Facebook and on TikTok. Amazing. Anjali, thanks so much for your time today and for um, explaining, you know, this really important work that you're doing. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Kanaki. Have a great day. So that was Anjali, a campaigner for Desis for Yes, a, cam- a collection of South Asian Australians campaigning for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament in New South Wales. We will be right back with our next interview after this. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Koori Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's north? Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. Hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. This November, the Australian National Academy of Music presents a festival celebrating the music of pioneering American composer George Crumb. Across four thrilling performances, Crumb's dynamic and engaging music will be paired alongside music by Igor Stravinsky, Thelonious Monk, Edgar Varese and more from the 23rd to the 25th of November at Abbotsford Convent. Find out more and book your tickets at anam.com.au. The Australian National Academy of Music 
is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Wake is a new performance installation by powerhouse experimental theatre makers The Rabble and produced by Performing Lines. Created with an ensemble of older women from Melbourne's West about the body, death and loneliness, it embraces connection, the rituals we inhabit as we go and the spaces where we can feel most comfortable. Joining us on the show this morning is theatre maker and director Cassandra Fumi. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Cass. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. Um, it's can, great. I'm, I love a bit of talking about work. That's I, a nice thing I know to you do. do. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we're happy to have you. Um, tell us where the idea of Wake came from. What are some of the main themes that you explore in the show? Well, Wake really came from um, so Emma Valente and Kate Davis, who are the two artistic directors and directors of came up with this idea of wanting to work with older women and just talk to them about their lives and give them voice and um, celebrate them, really, in all of the complexities of the long lives that they've lived. And so they got me on board as a community liaison, and I had this glorious job of finding these women that were going to be in the show and what ended up happening was some people were in the live show and then some people were in our exhibition which can be seen before the show but it was this amazing kind of process of just going out into the community and trying to find people who have never performed before but were curious about what it might be to be on stage and tell their story. So it's been a really interesting kind of seed of an idea that really came from Kate and Emma wanting to work with this demographic. That's so, uh, you know, it's very different. It's a really different concept. And when you think about it, um, you know, aging for women particularly is weirdly taboo. Um, yes. You know, what? why do you think it's important to to explore it in this way? And did your own perception of, you know, women's ageing bodies change through creating this show? I mean, yeah, totally. Like, I think through this process I've realised how much wisdom and knowledge and experience is there. And, like, the very early seeds of it were Kate, um, Kate Davis and Emma Valente and I going into these women's houses. And it was, you know, nearly two years ago that we started this project. So COVID was still happening and they would invite us into their homes, like Leila Hawley, the head of the Arabic Women's Association, and she would just talk to us about her life for kind of two to three hours. And so the show, in a way, is is trying to capture a tiny piece of that, of these women that we've now known quite intimately, but it's absolutely changed my perspective of ageing and I think, you know, the way that our society deals with older people to kind of shut them away a lot of the time is such a cruel interview to these people that have so much wisdom and have lived so much life. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like such a such a bizarre thing to do when you think about it. Um, particularly, I think, in Western cultures, that's sort mm. of what happens. Um, but your role in it sounds really interesting, finding these women within the community and, you know, 
getting them involved. Yeah, and, you, yeah, and you say a lot of them, you know, I've never done it before. Can you tell us about some of the women involved and what made them want to be a part of WIG? Well, I don't really know. Um, I think it's all different things. Like, I think of um, someone like KJ, who's not involved in the live show, but is involved in the exhibition and has been involved uh, throughout the whole process. And I think Karen Jackson, um, who's an amazing academic and thinker, really was kind of just like, I'm curious about who these women are, these younger women who want to talk to me about my life. And so I think there were different reasons for every group. I mean, we had the Vietnamese Women Association come in for the exhibition as well. And they were in, like, you know, these amazing outfits. And it was like a big day out for them. It was kind of their <laughs> event that they were doing. And that was really exciting, actually, to kind of have that as well. So I think all different reasons. And then others were like, I want to do something new. You know, I've been a nurse for most of my life and this is something I've never done and I want to challenge myself and I'm 83 and this is exciting to me. And, you know, one of the other women was a performer and always wanted to perform and really missed it. So I came to the project for that reason. But I think everyone's reason is very unique and everyone has had such a unique experience that the group is so bonded in such an extraordinary way because they're all just doing kind of an incredibly brave thing, which is to be witnessed by other people talking about their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And like this demographic in particular, I feel society doesn't give them this option or avenue very often. So I can imagine, you know, people taking it on um, and being pretty excited, uh, even though, and yeah, it's definitely really brave. Yeah, Yeah, and terrified. I would be terrified. Yeah. Oh my God, I would be terrified. And then, you know, they're not playing characters. They are themselves in all of the complexities in itself. And that is a very brave thing to do. We just had a um, open dress rehearsal last night with the family and friends of all the women in the live show. And some of the women from the video work came. And it was just kind of extraordinary watching these women really take ownership of their own stories and be heard in a brand new way and seen in a brand new way. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's incredibly brave to be so vulnerable up on stage as yourself, as you say, not playing oh, a character. Yeah. Um, totally, the, the shield is nothing there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a bit about the connection to Melbourne's West? Um, I know it's happening at the Italian Social Club in Altona and features women from the West. What's the connection there? Well, originally it started because the rabble was artists in residence at the substation, which is in Newport. Um, and so there was a natural connection through Hopkins Day Council. Very early on in the project for International Women's Day, we did a series of interviews that became the little snippets of videos. But then we found there was something so thrilling about the localised nature of it. These women live streets away from each other and yet have lived such very different lives. Um, and then we found the Altona Italian Social Club, which is one of the most phenomenal venues I've ever seen. They did pass the night on a Friday, $10, and $2 for a litre can of spice. You know, they're really... <laughs> prices, rising economy has not impacted the Altona Italian Social Club. But what it was for the community space, which this project is all about, it was like, 
let's look at the women in their can in our community. Um, and so it's all about all of the women who are in the project are based in the West, and all of the women in the video work are also based in the West. So we have the Chinese group, the Vietnamese group, the Italian seniors group, the Greek seniors group, and these are all these seniors groups that meet and connect weekly, you know, and kind of came on this journey with us of being like, yeah, I'll get my portrait taken and I'll talk to you about what I think about death. And so it's this really, um, what has been is this incredible collection of opinions and stories from a localised area that's really kind of exciting, actually. And you go, oh, you're two streets away from each other, you guys could get a coffee after this. And I hope that they do remain connected. It sounds so incredible and, yeah, really um, community-based and I'm so excited to come see it. Can you tell all our listeners how long Wake is running and where they can get tickets? Yeah, absolutely. So Wake has its first preview tonight at the Italian Social Club and it is running until the 19th of October. It's part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival and you can get tickets on the Substation website or through Melbourne Fringe. But yeah, definitely come down. It's incredibly unique and it's also just thrilling to have, you know, champions these ordinary people and their lives. And a lot of them have done really kind of extraordinary things. And it just celebrates existing, really, and ageing. And that it's not scary, as one of the women say, says, you know, being anti age is being anti life because we're constantly ageing. So it's about embracing that and celebrating experience. I love that quote so much. Um, and I think <laughs> it's it, so good. It's I, so good. I, it's so good. And these are the nuggets, you know. And so I think it began as this seed of these interviews. And then it was like, we want to share that with other people, that extraordinary experience that Emma, Kate and I had in these women's houses. And they just, because of all the life they've lived, they've just experienced so much. Absolutely. We will link to um, the Substation website for tickets in our show notes later today as well as on our socials. Cass, thank you for joining us this morning and talking to us about WIG. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you have a good rest of your day. <laughs> you, too, you too. So that was Cass Fumi, direct theatre maker, director and community liaison for up- upcoming performance week showing at the Italian Social Club in Altona until the 19th of October. Um, there is also an Auslan interpreted session on the 12th of October and all shows are wheelchair accessible. You can get your tickets at thesubstation.org.au slash program slash week, which we will of course link to in our show notes later today. We'll be right back with our last interview for the morning after this. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? 
Kamanacha on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. right to be in public space undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. You're listening to 3CR. Edie is a writer, performer, hailing from Melbourne's inner west, who has studied music, acting and dance intermittently over the last 20 years. She appeared in numerous musical theatre productions from 2015 to 2018 before taking a much-needed mental health break. Edie returns to the stage in Hot, Fat, Crazy, a show she co-wrote with Thomas Bradford. Edie joins us this morning to chat about the show, which has just had its season extended at Melbourne Fringe Festival. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Edie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Let's start with telling the listeners a bit about yourself. How did you get into performing and comedy? Uh, I guess I got into performing because my parents are both musicians so music was sort of my first love and I was really lucky I was introduced to singing and and felt really supported from when I was really young and I just always loved it and um, I think I got into comedy through doing musical theatre I realised how much I enjoyed playing comedic roles and and I started writing little comedy songs on my own and then I joined forces with Tommy and we wrote this show. Uh, so the show is Hot Fat Crazy, which is part of Melbourne Fringe. And as I've said, it just had its season extended and was selected as judge's pick. What's the show about? The show's uh, based on a lot of time I spent in the psych ward, which it sounds a little bit dry, but I promise <laughs> it's not. It's, um, it's very zany and silly. It's based on some of the weird and wonderful experiences I had and the different people that I met. There are 27 sock puppets in it, um, and there's all original music. It's also dipped into my reclamation of the word fat as a fat person myself, especially the um, fat phobia that I've experienced through the medical system. What's your experience been like using your own experience of the medical system and psych ward admissions as the basis of the show? It's been amazing. Um, it's been really rewarding. I've had a lot of people come up to me 
after the show and say that they've had psych, psych ward admissions as well and haven't really felt empowered to talk about it or have worried they might be judged, but that they felt a lot less alone after seeing the show. So that's been amazing. And I think um, demystifying the psych ward experience um, is a real pleasure. I, I didn't know what it was going to be like before I had my first admission. I had a really different idea of how things would be. And I think a lot of other people do as well. So, you know, showing people that it's not all once we're over the cookies nest and you can still meet amazing people and have fun and learn things about yourself has, has been amazing. Mm, I love that about the arts, that people can see their own story in that and not feel so alone. What made yeah. you lean towards using comedy uh, as like a tool to tell your story and touch on these heavier themes? Um, I guess because because I found so much joy in my experience in the psych ward, and also because there was so much. So, I mean, so much happened that already was comedy. I didn't really even have to <laughs> to write it in. So I guess that's just. And also, I think for me, um, one of the main reasons that I enjoy theatre and music is because. Uh, of its ability to make me laugh. I think that that's some of the most incredible art I've ever seen is um, art that's able to take something that might be might come from a place of trauma or or a place of darkness and turn it into something really light and joyful. So I, I definitely wanted to give that a go. Mm, totally. There's no better feeling than sitting in a room of strangers having a shared moment over laughter, I think. And I also yeah. love... Um, you know, the phrase stranger than fiction or having something happen and thinking you couldn't write this, it's just happened. And I think yeah. using those uh, sorts of moments is really resonates with people and is a great way to take your own experience into something else. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before that the show also is about your reclamation of the word fat. Can you tell us about this journey and why we need to move beyond the negative connotations of this word? Oh, I think... Um I think everybody, especially women, are taught to hate their bodies from when we're so young. I think it's almost like a radical act to to put effort into liking yourself and enjoying the way you look. And for me, I think one of the first ways to start with that is not using fat as a dirty word, just using it as an adjective, like we would skinny or any other word that we'd use to describe people. I think people still see it as the worst thing that you could be called which I understand because I grew up in the same generation as everybody else. But I think if I can contribute in any way to the normalisation and celebration of fatness, then I'd be really pleased with myself. Mm, I agree. I think it's funny people that talk about being, you know, body positive or going with that movement still find the word fat as like this, you know, no-go zone a lot of the time tending to use uh adjectives that don't really touch on it so I find that interesting um the show has music throughout can you tell listeners a bit about what they can expect and yeah what sort of songs are in the show we have songs from almost every different genre we have country songs we have like a portishead trip-hop song a touch of musical theater uh there's a very jazzy sort of siren song we have everything, and it covers things like magnet wizards, homophobic cats, people hooking up in the psych ward. <laughs> it's all very zany, very silly, very, very fun. Tom also plays 
a billion different characters and we have 27 sock puppets singing back up and playing little backup instruments in the songs as well. And um, they're all with, uh, we've recorded backing tracks that have like uh, live instrumentation. My dad played almost every instrument. Tom played some and I played some. So yeah, it sounds like you're going to a show with a live band as well. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what's it felt like to have your season extended and get judges pick from the first week? It felt amazing. It felt really incredible. Um, like I said, the show is so silly and absolutely absurd. Um, but, you know, it was written about a time in my life when I was really unwell. And at that point in time, I just didn't really see a future for myself. And I didn't think that I would ever recover. So to be living a stable life and feeling really happy like I am now is amazing. But to be able to write a show about that experience that seeing the success that it's seeing now is is just like icing on a cake. It's been a really great week. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think audiences are really reaching for shows that are uplifting and joyful and can show them a good time uh, with everything else that's going on in the world at the moment. So it's, yeah, really beautiful that you can take your own experience that maybe wasn't quite that joyful at the time and turn it into something that people can leave feeling amazing from. That's all we have time for this morning, Edie. But can you tell the listeners uh, where they can find you, when your show is, and any other things you may have coming up? Sure. Uh, You can find Hot Fat Crazy in the meeting room at Trey Hall this Friday and Saturday at 10pm. And then in the same place at the meeting room at Trey Hall this Sunday at 9pm. And you can follow us on Instagram at Tommy and Edie. Um, If you want to hear about any other gigs that we have coming up, we're going to announce them soon. But this is probably the last time that we're ever going to be doing Hot Fight Crazy in Melbourne. So if you want to come see it, this weekend is your chance. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Edie, writer and performer, chatting about her Melbourne Fringe show, Hot Fat Crazy, which is co-written with Thomas Bradford. They've just had their season extended at Melbourne Fringe and you can find out more information at melbournefringe.com.au. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Hi, my name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on, it's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. 
You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We are reaching the end of our show this morning. A quick wrap-up of what we had on the show today. We started off by listening to a conversation, uh, sorry, a segment on reproductive rights for migrants and refugees that was originally broadcast on Women on the Line earlier in September. Um, We then listened to another excerpt from a Women on the Line episode uh, where Fung spoke with Nura Mansour from APAN about the significance of Palestinian resistance. We played this interview in light of what happened uh, over the weekend. We then spoke with Anjali, a campaigner from South Asian collective in New South Wales called Desis for Yes, who campaign among South Asian migrant communities for the Yes vote for um, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. At 8 o'clock, we spoke with theatre maker Cass Fumi, who talked to us about an incredible new show, Wake, which is part of the Fringe Festival, created by The Rebel and produced by Performing Lines. Wake is showing from today until the 19th of October. Um, We will link to tickets in our show notes later today. And we just spoke with Edie, writer and performer, also with a Melbourne Fringe show, The show is Hot, Fat, Crazy, which she co-wrote with Thomas Bradford and is about... It's a musical comedy about her time in the psych ward and reclaiming the word fat. That has just had its season extended and is on this weekend at Trades Hall, 13th, 14th and 15th of October. You can find out more information at melbournefringe.com.au and for that one we will also link to the show notes later. That brings us to the end of our show today. Uh, We will be back again next Tuesday at 7am. Stay tuned to breakfast for the rest of the week. And as always, Accent of Women is coming up next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.